don't lose sight of the purpose. The purpose is really clear until that first big client hits and then they want you to do something different. The purpose is clear until you have a challenge with an employee. The purpose is clear until you don't know how you're gonna pay the bills that month. But don't lose sight of the purpose. That's number one. I open my computer that I'm looking at, the work is there. I pick up my phone, the work is there. Like the, the work is always gonna be there. I've got to find ways to reinforce the purpose. It's not enough to have priorities, you gotta prioritize your priorities. Culture does not work on autopilot. And if you think you're gonna implement this process or get this in place and it's gonna happen, you are sadly mistaken. Well, hey there, if we haven't yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they are created to be so that others may benefit and God may be glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission, how that calling comes to life. Now, I'm so excited because today's conversation is with my friend, Kevin Scott. Now, I, I really don't know Kevin as well as I feel like I do. We've really only had two phone conversations, but it was in the course of those two conversations that I realized, man, there's just so much I can learn from this guy. And I just asked him, can I come spend the day with you and your team down in Atlanta? And thank Hopefully, he was gracious enough to let me do that because you see, Kevin owns and leads a business called Addo Worldwide. It's a leadership consultancy that works with just incredible, massive, iconic brands like Coca-Cola, Chick-fil-A, the Atlanta Braves, and Addo really works to equip and inspire leaders in those organizations to make a difference in their community and in the world around them. And it was so cool to get to spend the day with Kevin and his team because one of the things that I almost instantly observed is that Kevin is truly one of the most positive, curious, intentional, and purpose-driven leaders that I know. And it was so remarkable to see how, as a result of his intentional and purpose-driven leadership, the culture at Addo, within all of the people that are collaborating and working on different spheres of the business, it's truly one of the most positive, curious, and intentional cultures I've ever been around. And so that's really what I wanted to talk to Kevin about today is, number one, how does a culture like that happen? Because I know it's not accidental. It's incredibly intentional. But then also beyond that, what does it look like to be a leader who is constantly disrupting yourself so that you are able to stay in front of and ahead of an organization like that so it's constantly growing, improving, and moving forward? And so where I thought it would be awesome to start this conversation is by asking Kevin, who is now 36, that if he had a phone call with 26-year-old Kevin about business, about leadership, and about life, what would he want to tell him? Well, yeah, I'm jumping out of one business that I had helped start, jumping into another that I'm in right now. I think the two messages that I would hammer home, that I would remind, I think I knew were true then, but I would want to emphasize to Kevin from 10 years ago Number one is this, don't lose sight of the purpose. The purpose is really clear until that first big client hits and then they want you to do something different. The purpose is clear until you have a challenge with an employee. The purpose is clear until you don't know how you're gonna pay the bills that month, but don't lose sight of the purpose. That's number one. And number two, I think I'd tell them 10 years in the future, like it's gonna go by fast, like enjoy it. I think as an entrepreneur, I felt that I'm always striving and it's the next milestone. It's the next uh, revenue level. It's the next number of employees. It's the next client. And I don't know that I would have listened. So I don't know that it's really helpful to tell me that, but that's what <laughs> I would have told myself is to enjoy those pieces. And I'm saying that now, I think somebody from 10 years from now needs to come and tell me right now. Enjoy <laughs> Your it. phone's going to start ringing from 40 yes. something year old. Kevin, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just for context too, so everyone has, how old were you in 2011? So two, that's a great question. I was 26 in 2011 and starting my second business. So Wow. Very cool. Okay. So at that time too, kind of reflecting on that first piece, which I love of don't lose sight of the purpose. If we were to go back then, and maybe it's the exact same thing now, what was the purpose? What was the dream that you had for Addo and for what you were building? And why were you stepping out to start this business? 
Yeah, you know, I had been fortunate enough to be a part of starting a purpose-driven organization before. It was a global travel company. But for me, what I realized was I find a lot of joy and satisfaction with the breadth of reach, not just depth. So I I just admittedly, I want to reach a, a larger number of people. And the group we were working with before was kind of more the work of intrigue. It was some deep work with a few, just a few small number of people. And I wanted to make a bigger impact. So the dream was we want to inspire people today to impact tomorrow. We want to inspire a generation around leadership and around service. That was the goal. That was the purpose. And, you know, the purpose 10 years later hasn't changed. Mm. What I find is we don't talk about it as often or as clearly 10 years later as we did at the beginning. And I think for some reason, maybe it's not other people. Maybe other people don't struggle with it. Maybe it's just me. But now I spend more time talking about our budgets and our P&L and our strategic goals even than the purpose of why we do what we do. I think you and I know that, but if you sat down with me, if we met out at a restaurant right now and you said, hey, what do you do? I know that I need to tell you why I do what I do, but I'd probably start telling you how we do it and what we do. It just Totally. Well, and that's why that's honestly why I wanted to start here, because I mean, some of the reasons why we schedule the conversations that we schedule for this podcast are literally just selfish in nature. And you are someone that I look at and I'm like, man, he's that guy that's like four or five steps ahead of me that had like. I right now in my personal seat with the small team that we have, like just starting up in the past seven months, have already found it challenging to not deviate from the purpose. And like I will literally, I mean, I had a moment three weeks ago, Kevin, where I looked up and I was outrageously stressed out around the business and it was all related to things that weren't related to the purpose. And when I come back to the purpose, I'm like, oh my gosh, I love this. And so like if I'm experiencing this now, I know like at the stage of completion, complexity and you've got a couple more commas in the numbers that you're dealing with too and other people's lives that are involved and families that are involved and dependent I I guess how do you in the season that you're in right now when you do feel yourself deviating how do you bring yourself back and how do you keep yourself on target well well number one it's conversations with folks like you Alex or people that that ask you the tough questions Because the truth is most people, when they ask you, you can get away with telling them what you do. You can tell them your goals. You can tell them some accomplishments and and that's enough. I think a lot of, if you're surrounding yourself with the right people, they will not let you off the hook with that. So Mm. that's one is that iron sharpens iron. Who am I spending time with? Uh, Not just successful entrepreneurs, not just people that have accomplished a lot, people that are driven by the same values that I'm driven by. That's number one. The other thing that I have realized is if it's easy for the purpose to slip for the leader or the founder, how easy is it for it to slip for the employee, for the team member? And I am realizing that our team, they need me to be as red hot on fire for the purpose as I've ever been because it doesn't matter. They're always going to be probably a little level beneath that just because they don't have the same level of ownership. I'm going to have to live that out and be that if I'm going to keep it front and center for our team. And so what does that look like in the day to day? Because sometimes I think the people that I work with, but I also find myself doing this, like I think of, okay, working the purpose into my business. It's like this big existential conversation that occurs once a year about the difference that we're going to make for the globe. Right. And what I've noticed is that the business is, I mean, the business, like you do a ton of work with Chick-fil-A. I used to work at Ramsey Solutions, right? Whenever I visited you and your team, it seems like way more of a, just more of a rhythm and more of a cadence than some massive event. Yeah. And I think that the team is going to do the activities. What they need me to do is once they're doing it, say, just remember, this is the reason why. And I can give you an example of this. Let me just, I live in Georgia. I live in Atlanta area, but let's just say I came to you, Alex, and I said, Hey, you know what? I got a job offer for you. Here's an opportunity. We're going to go down to the coast of Georgia. We're going to go to Savannah and I am going to, here, I need you. It's uh, 90 degrees. It's 100% humidity. And I want you to spend 10 to 12 hours a day moving sandbags. And I'm going to give you $8 an hour to do it. I don't know anybody. I don't know the homeless guy down the street if he's signing up for that job. Like, it's not an exciting, appealing job. But 
if on the flip side, if Alex, you have family that lives in Savannah and there was a hurricane coming in and you need to go move sandbags to protect their property and it's still 90 degrees, it's still 100% humidity, it's still 10 to 12 hours a day, but I'm going to pay you zero dollars. I probably couldn't keep you from doing that if it's somebody you cared about. And, mm. and this is what I have to remember for our team. It's not that the money isn't important. It's not the activities aren't important, but the money and the activities are always secondary to why they do what they do. And it's my job to be that reminder. If we were down there, I'd be saying, hey, just remember this. This is no fun. This sucks. But the reason we're doing it is because what we're trying to do, I need to be that force here that reminds our team why they do what they do. I love that. Okay. So if you're in that leadership seat where, and I've actually heard this before, people say, well, that's a little bit easier for people that are in the content space, right? For people that that say like, literally our purpose is to inspire people today to impact tomorrow because it's like, well, that's literally what you do, right? Like that's what you do with the leaders that you work with. And they say like, we are in roofing or we're in general contracting or we own a plumbing business or we, you know, we even do branding and marketing, right? They're like, how do I, number one, identify something deeper because I know that's valuable, but then how do I use that? I love that objection when people give it because I'm fortunate enough to work with Chick-fil-A every day. (laughs) Could you imagine a, at the end of the day, a less sexy business? And I don't know another way to say it, but it's fast food. It's fried chicken and fast food. It is not like some super appealing work, but they are clear on being impact driven. I remember 10, 15 years ago hearing Dan Cathy say at the time, you know, they got 2,400 locations now at the time. That time it was 1,500. And he said, we don't have 1,500 locations. We have 1,500 pulpits behind which we do ministry. And he said, God gave me a chicken sandwich as a way to connect with people. What has he given you? Maybe he's given you a talent to roof. Maybe he's given you a talent to plumb. Maybe he's given you a lawnmower and a a business in that area. Maybe he's given you a, a computer and a mind to do accounting. Like every, It's really not as difficult as we make it out to be. And I think oftentimes, I'd actually flip it. I'd say it's easier in those businesses because in the content business, we get so caught up in how do we message it and are we articulating the right way? Sometimes we overcomplicate the deal and it's really simple. God's given us gifts. We have an opportunity to use those gifts to connect with people to make their lives better. And if we frame it in that way, it's not much more complicated than that. Gosh, I I love that you went to the Chick-fil-A example there because it's almost like when you say it's an unsexy business, it's almost like you have to convince me. You do because you're like, oh, it's (laughs) Chick-fil-A. McDonald's, Taco Bell, KFC, pick any of the others. Like it's the same business. The business is different. The purpose behind it is different. The way it's articulated is different. And I always say this, when the purpose is clear, the mundane becomes meaningful. And Mm. your mundane may feel more mundane than my mundane sometimes, but it still is about the purpose to make that mundane meaningful. Man. So the second piece that you mentioned was really uh, kind of related to pace, right? And just the whole idea that it's really easy to get caught on this, almost this striving thing. And and it's almost like the work that you do to see the purpose achieved ends up being the thing that takes you away from the purpose to begin with. It's like the purpose is available right now. So <laughs> how do you, how do you, you mon- again, I need to hear that because I'm saying <laughs> this, but I need to hear that. It, the work is what takes you away from the purpose. It is, it is so true. Okay. So how do you deal with that though? Because it's like, I I don't think the answer, like sometimes I get into this weird funk where I'm like, I'm pretty sure I just need to go move into a cave in the middle of Africa or something like that and just disappear from the face of the earth and I'll have purpose in that stage of isolation. And I don't think that's right. Yeah. (laughs) Notice I said, I don't think that's right. I'm not positive, but I don't think. It's not right. It's not right. I'm trying to think like, I mean, you uh, did a podcast not too long ago about like the top books you read last year. And mm-hmm. I, I sometimes I'm all living in this leadership space. You don't want to say things that other people have said before. You're like, this is just tried. It's the same things. But we've heard for our whole life, like, oh, you show me the people you meet or you hang out with and the books you're reading and I'll show you where you'll be. But at the end of the day, Alex, I don't know another way that we cannot let the work distract from it unless we've got 
some external force that's helping remind us. And that force may be a person in our life. Maybe we're not fortunate enough to have those people that are doing it. Maybe it's a book we're reading. Maybe it's our faith and some accountability. But I actually don't know an internal mechanism that can prevent us from doing that without, because the work is just a gravitational force that is always going to be pulling us and you need something to be pulling you in the other direction to remind you of your why. Okay. So what plays that role for you, Kevin? I think number one, it it is, it's people. And I don't know a replacement for that. I don't know. I mean, and sometimes it's a mentor, but sometimes it's somebody we pay as a coach, but it's got to be somebody who's asking us the tough questions. I don't know a replacement for that. The second thing is, how do I create visual reminders here? You sat in our office and you saw we have one wall that's probably, we do not have a glamorous office for the record. For anybody (laughs) thinking that, we're in like an industrial park. It's very uh, <laughs> well. The inside of y'all's office, though, it's kind of like one of those old homes that it's like, oh, this is where we're doing this. Huh? And then you walk in, you're like, oh my god! And it's because amazing. we've got to put visual reminders to put it there. So we got a 14 foot wall that says in this bright colors that looks like graffiti style. Inspire people today to impact tomorrow, because. We've got to make it front and center because the work will always be front and center. I open my computer that I'm looking at. The work is there. I pick up my phone. The work is there. I get a phone. Like the the work is always going to be there. I've got to find ways to reinforce the purpose. Yeah. Related to what you said about having people that are willing you to uh, willing to ask you the tough questions in eight essential ex- exchanges. I think one of the one of the exchanges that's Kevin's book, one of the exchanges you talk about that I feel like resonated so much with me was exchanging fans for friends. And that's just That's what I see are people, maybe one of the common struggles that they can even identify with is they're surrounded by people that are literally just clapping for them. And that that probably worse than that, they're surrounded by people that are impressed by them. And, and, And then, and not only that, they would even say like, I feel like I need to keep impressing these people to keep them around me. And it sounds like what you're talking about, the type of people that you need in your life to be that external force is something way different. So can you describe, number one, what is the difference? And then number two, how, how do you go about cultivating those types of relationships because it's different than having fans? Yeah. Let's talk about this principle first. And I want to dive into that. But this idea of exchanges really came about, it, it's a, I say eight essential exchanges because it's alliteration. It, we're really talking about a principle of a trade-off which is how do you give up something good to get something you really want? It is, I believe for young leaders, it's the toughest challenges we face. Mm-hmm. And we got older people are telling us, you got to do that. You got to give up. But I'm like, yeah, it's easy for you. You're rich. You've made it. Like, <laughs> like, Hey, you know, I, I love John Maxwell, hero of mine, love John Maxwell. But when John Maxwell says, don't worry about making money, worry about making a difference. I'm like, it's easy for you to say you're rich. Like, how do you, when you haven't achieved what you want to achieve yet, how do you give up those things and, and give up something good? Giving up something bad is easy. Giving up something good. And so that principle of giving up fans for friends, the first thing we have to say is that having those people that clap for you isn't bad. And this is big, Alex, because what a lot of times we are forced with is like, that's toxic. Delete your social media account. You can't have people that clap for you. You can't have a bigger network. Like, No. In most businesses, your social media account is probably pretty helpful. It's probably a good networking tool for you. Like having a bigger following, I don't meet many people who are like, I really need less customers. I need less clients. Like, <laughs> so that's stupid. But when that is the focus so much that it stands in the way of cultivating the real relationships, what I learned is that we don't have the support system we need when life really hurts. And I just... I, I've heard in the military, they call them foxhole friends. Oprah Winfrey back in the day, I loved her quote. She used to say like, everybody wants to ride in the limousine with you. You need to find the people who want to ride in the bus with you when the limousine breaks down. Like Mm. you've got to find those people. And so your question was, how do you find them? It's not saying I don't want the other people. It's having that intentional community with people who are going to be honest with you. And some people find that in a faith group, you know, with a small group of accountability. Some people find it with their family. 
And some people honestly have got to find somebody that they're going to pay to do that because at some point they've had everybody tell them what they want and they almost have to pay somebody to tell them what they need to hear, even when they don't want to hear it. I, I look at it this way. It, you know, how, some of us need a personal trainer because we just flat out don't have the discipline. And we need somebody who is going to hold us accountable to doing what we need to do, even when our, everything within us doesn't want to do it. It's the same thing in business, whether that's a workout buddy, a personal trainer, partner, you need somebody who's going to tell you what you need to hear when you don't want to hear it. Man. So how do you, because there's, there's something different about the way that the way that you cultivate that relationship. I, I had a client the other day say this just in passing. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so insightful. She said, people treat you the way you train them to. And it was like, yeah. wow, that not that good? And, and it, like, it's like, well, that's true. So how do you train people, right? Which sounds a little bit weird to say, but how do you develop people or develop relationships in such a way that you're treating them in such a way not to be impressed with you? Oh, yeah. Or first to be all, real uh, with you and ask you the bold questions, you yeah. know? First of all, I love that line. I had a friend that said it this way when I mean, he's like, you teach people how to love you. And he was talking about it in a romantic relationship, but he's, he, he believed that one of the fundamental flaws that people have in their dating relationships is the first couple months they're enamored with each other and they spend all their time together. And then a few months later, when the person wants to have their own identity, they want to go play golf or they want to go hang out with friends. They want to do this. They're like, whoa, 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 I didn't know. I thought we spent all of our time together. It's like, you have to intentionally early on do that. I love the way that your friend said it. I think in the business world, it really comes down to authenticity and just being real with them. So sharing the struggle, sharing those pieces. But Alex, it's got to be both. What you can't have is one group of people that tell you everything you want to hear. And then another friend who only or coworker who only tells you the stuff you don't want to hear. Like if somebody is only tell, I'm an Enneagram three, I am a performer. I need people to like, if the person is only telling me all the things that I don't want to hear, like that person is going to get tuned out pretty quickly. <laughs> I think they've got to have that balance of appreciating who you are with validating that and also caring enough about you to, to call you out when you need to be. It's, uh, it's a great question. There's not a like trite answer that gets you there. That's got to be very intentional. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that I've been learning lately is like, number one, like you've, it's not bad to tell people what you need from a specific conversation. Like, and that was just such a foreign idea to me that someone taught me recently is like, it's not bad to start a conversation by saying like, Hey, here's what I really need from you in this conversation. It's like, that can actually be really good and healthy, right? Cause then you're giving them the opportunity to respond in the proper way. Yeah. And you know what you think you're telling them what you need, but in a lot of ways, you may be giving them what they need. I love, you know, this old school saying, but Zig Ziglar used to say, if you go out looking for a friend, you'll find them very scarce or hard to find. But if you go out to be a friend, you'll find them everywhere. Mm. And it's interesting, Alex, because when you say that, if I say that to somebody else, like, hey, here's what I need from you in this conversation. Do you know what that also does? It gives them permission to say that to me. Kevin, here's That's what right. I actually need from you. Here's what I need from you in this conversation, which also is so freeing for me because as a, like, who do you need me to be right now? Tell, tell me who you need me to be. And I can play that role. Yeah. And, and you're not holding yourself or people to a standard that you're just keeping shrouded in mystery, which yeah. is actually really helpful. Okay. So related to the concept of pace as well, one of the things that really interests me and intrigues me about kind of the journey you've walked since you started this business 10 years ago is number one, it's grown rapidly. You've grown rapidly. And I mean, there's kind of been different seasons of your life. It seems like I think whenever you started the business, you were single in the process, you got married. Now you've had a kid like that feels for me like a lot of gear shifts in many ways. And what I'd like to know is like, how do you adjust your pace whenever the season inevitably changes? I, I think I need to turn this around and ask you for advice on this. I, <laughs> you know, Alex, it's tough. I, I think it, a lot of it goes back to just being honest with myself. And I, I don't know that I did it really well when I first got married. Hmm. Because when I first got married, the idea was, I love Laura. 
we're, we love each other. We're pretty driven, pretty independent in a lot of ways. So we just keep a, the same pace and we're just living together and we're doing things together. But having my first child, there was a need for a lot of intentionality because uh, a guy who likes nights more than mornings, well, that's really tough when you got a kid that gets up early. And I think it's just been a, watching a lot of people who I look at that I want to be like, not just in business, but in personal life. For a guy who, you know, tells me he never takes a phone call into the house. It was just like a tactical piece for me. It was, how do you pace? Okay, my pace may go all day. It may be long, but when I pull up in the house, I may sit in the car for 30 minutes before I walk in, but my I don't want to walk into the house distracted those first few minutes. I had another guy who said he had a five by five, five by five rule or something. He's like, in the first five minutes in his house, he stays no more than five feet away from his wife. And they realized that just that proximity was important. <laughs> it's crazy, but these are tactics. Tell me what to do. I'm not good. <laughs> I just want to know if he told her he was going to do that or if he's literally. Like, so that one, and then, you know, I think this has been another thing. This last one on that front, you know, in the Jewish culture, their day begins at night. Like that's been the strategy. Like, the, the evening is the best part of your day. When they celebrate a holiday, it's from sundown to sundown. So the beginning of it is sundown. And it was really a challenge to me. How do I make that? I'm really focused on my first meeting of the day, the first big client call, the first piece I've got to do. But how do I make that time I'll walk in the door after in the afternoon the best part of my day, the most intentional part of my day? Mm. I don't do it well all the time. But if I'll tell you what, if, if we approached home life with the same intentionality that we approach our work life, we'd be a heck of a lot better at it. Well, I feel like I came and visited you. I think it was shortly after the baby arrived. Is that right? Baby two. Yeah. Baby number yeah. two. Yeah. And it was almost like I could, you said something I remember that made me think like, oh man, he's taking this really seriously. Like, like is being very dedicated to establishing clear boundaries with work and time after work and time before work and things like that. And I, I really, I admired, and it's something that I kind of took a mental note of is it's like, man, how much better to establish those boundaries because you want to have them instead of like three months after the baby's been born and now you've got a wife that's mad at you and you feel horrible about yourself and you're burnt out and you're not getting any sleep and then you need to establish those boundaries. Like I was just so impressed by the way you had done that kind of on the front end very intentionally. And so I guess what created that sense of proactivity and then what advice would you give to people for establishing those boundaries? Well, you know, I, I almost feel hypocritical talking about this sometimes because it's, it's an area I don't feel like I get right. I don't get right all the time. Number one, and I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but it's who I'm watching. Like the people that I'm watching, I used to be impressed by people who were really successful at business. Now, as I look at people older than me, I'm really impressed by parents whose kids want to spend time with them when they can choose whether or not they have to. Like. Okay. That's like when I'm 70, do I care? Like, yeah, I'm so focused. I, we create the best place to work. That's great. I love that my employees are engaged and love me. If my employees love me more than my kids do, then I've got a real problem. So that's like, that's one just major piece of it. I'll tell you. So on creating boundaries, I feel like I do well. A lot of partial attention though. And I think the thing that I'm trying to work on with my employees, the time thing I'm trying to work on at home with my family is keeping this and I'm holding up my phone, not being just wherever I am being there. That goes back to exchanging fans for friends is wherever you are, be there. And I'll tell you what, Alex, I was so impressed with the days you spent in our office, because in my mind, I listen to your podcast. I see the content you're putting out. I see incredible things. And I'm so impressed. I was even more impressed at how locked in you were, you were during the time you were here. I didn't feel like you were the busy guy that had other things to do. So hmm. maybe I need to, you need to share this lesson. Maybe this is a content <laughs> no. episode. Well, I enjoyed hanging out with y'all and that kind of, I think perfectly sets up 
whenever I was there, like it was such a gift just to spend time with you, but also with your team as a whole, because really, and I think you would even say this, it's a pretty remarkable culture that y'all have built. And and it's the culture that I think I see a lot of people are striving to have. Like you have a lot of people that are running around your office acting like owners in many ways. A lot of people that show up and walk in the door and their default face is smiling. A lot of people that like when I showed up as a guest, they like, they went out of their way to make me feel hyper, hyper, hyper welcome and make sure that I always had someone to talk to, right? Which that's something I like. I love always having someone to talk to. And so what I would like to know as we kind of transition the leadership piece of this is what are the intentional things that you think you did to create that culture? And what are the things that you look back and say, man, that wasn't necessarily intentional. Like that may have been a little bit of an accident, but it definitely resulted in what we have right now. Yeah. Let me give you the first part of like, when you talk about our team being really receptive to you and something, one, a a book that was life-changing for me. Thank you. Have you read Essentialism by Greg McEwen? I have heard that book referenced so many times, but I've never read it. Really great book, but it, Not to discount the book, I'll sum it up for you in this. He would say that in the word priority was introduced in the English language in the 1400s, and it was singular. It meant Mm. the very first or prior thing, the word priority. And he said only in the 1900s did we pluralize the term and start talking about priorities. And I love this next one. He said, illogically, we reasoned that by changing the word, we could bend reality. And and. Ultimately, what he's saying is it's not enough to have priorities. You got to prioritize your priorities. And in a business, it's important for a team, for the leader to help them do that. Chick-fil-A example is a priority is speed and a priority is uh, safe food. When you go through a drive-thru, you think they're thinking about speed. But when speed comes in conflict with something being safe, which do you choose? We're always going to choose safe over speed. Our internal culture, we value each other. We value responsiveness. But I have drilled it in the mind of our team, a, a receptiveness, a responsiveness to external clients, guests, people is always important. I, It's like, hey, I have a meeting. I got something to do, but we have a guest in the office. Like that takes precedence. We've, we're trying to, and, and that's tough. Like there's a trade-off there, but somebody emailed me on our team and they need something, but I just got an email from a client and I am telling them, we want to be responsive to everybody, but when those come in conflict, we are going to choose this external audience. And it's just become clear. And I think in a lot of ways, it's freeing for our team. So that's a piece that helped create that culture, those pieces, that buy-in. Well, part real quick on that, like th- that's from an ownership mentality standpoint, it's actually something we talked about before we started recording is like, man, the the beauty about owning something is you don't have to to justify your decisions necessarily because it's like, well, I, I own it, you know? And it's like, when you allow someone to own their role and it's like, and you give them, like you say, this is the decision-making framework. Like, I just imagine your team never has to justify spending time with a customer that has walked through the door. Even if some of their work isn't necessarily getting done that like that is also a priority and it, they know is important they don't have to justify that they're spending time with people that are outside the organization for sure and and I'll tell you what that's something we've gotten right in the last five years that we didn't get right in the first five years because what happened the first five years is the belief was still the same for me but it was unspoken so it's frustrations it's uh, time to tell them now when you're just really clear and say this is the framework like this is this takes precedence over this. I thought that because I'm an entrepreneur, I don't want somebody to tell me what to do. So I thought telling them what to do is constraining, but in reality, it's freeing for them because now they know what success looks like and they feel a lot better. And it may not be, they may go work somewhere else someday and that may not be the same metric, but here, how do they understand how we're going to measure success and effectiveness. And I've just, I think we've gotten better the last five years at clarifying it instead of um, assuming. Clarifying instead of assuming. That's really good. Anything else that you would say was either hyper-intentional or you look back and you say, well, that wasn't intentional, but it worked out pretty well with regard to the culture that you have inside the building, Kevin. Yeah, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, culture. Because uh, we believe really most people spend a lot of time talking about marketing, 
because marketing is the story that you're telling your customers. But I would say culture is the story that you're telling your employees. And those two are just opposite sides of the same coin. It's all the same story. Just one is an external story and one is an internal story. And I don't believe they can be separated. And when your internal culture is strong, when you tell that story well, then our employees become the best storytellers for our customers. And so, you know, I don't think anybody needs me to talk about culture. There's a million books and a lot of uh, pieces and, and you can go a lot of different ways, but you can't do it without intentionality. Culture does not work on autopilot. And if you think you're going to implement this process or get this in place and it's going to happen, <laughs> you are sadly mistaken. Okay. Related to that, you have a lot of team members that actually seem to like each other and like that. And it's like, well, that's a beautiful thing, right? Cause I, I don't think that always exists everywhere. And so can you talk to me about hiring people? Number one, that you find likable, but then also how, like how you create a culture where people actually enjoy spending time with each other. Yeah. Let me talk about how we get the people. And I'm going to say something that I think is really important that I'm not good at but I have people on our team that are. Number one is we don't tolerate bad apples. There is a professor, mm-hmm. Will Phelps, that did this bad apple experiment in college. Have you heard of it? I don't know. No. It, he, he intentionally, he, you know, anybody that's been to college, you've been on a group project and maybe you've had the person on your group that was terrible or maybe you were the person that was terrible at one time. But he would intentionally put some bad people on some teams like that were were told to be actors to bring the team down. And they found that teams that had a bad apple were 30 to 40% less effective than other teams. Here's the good news. He found that teams where they intentionally had somebody who pushed back against the bad apple who said, "Eh, it's not okay, we're not gonna do that. They were able to kind of maintain performance. But I mean, one person brings it down. Now I'm a people pleaser. It's a bad flaw sometimes. I don't love to have those hard conversations. But I have leaders in our organization that understand our values and they hold people rigidly accountable to those. And they're not afraid to push the people that aren't uh, in alignment out. We will reward high performers, but not uh, good culture fits with a nice severance package because it doesn't matter if they're high performer, they're not right for our team. That's one. Your second part of that was like, how do you foster things where they genuinely like each other? You got to give them an opportunity to bring them their full selves to work. I walked out of a meeting into this conversation from something we do every month called a Renaissance lunch. A Renaissance lunch, the Renaissance man or woman is a well-rounded individual. They're good at a lot of things. Every month we bring our team together for lunch and somebody on our team shares something outside of the realm of work that they're learning, that they're passionate about, that helps our team get better. Today was Christian. He's in a band. Uh, He plays at his church on Sunday morning, and he was walking us through electric guitar and how to record. Two months ago, we were doing ballet at lunch, and I was sore for like four days. Uh, (laughs) We've had him on etiquette. We've had him on, I don't know, marching bands, whatever, but it's it allows us to connect with each other beyond our day-to-day. And when you can do that and learn from each other, and man, it's just... You can't help but like somebody when you really know their story. Man, I love that. I am totally going to rip that idea from you. I hope you I hope you're Absolutely. Cool with that. Absolutely. Great. Uh, okay, so how do you make it to where I mean, you've got like you've got some pretty serious either I mean, you've got former professional athletes on your team. You've got some pretty legit dudes and also some pretty incredible high-performing women on your team too. So, when you've got a guy that used to play professional baseball on your team and you're coming to a lunch and you're saying like, Hey, we're going to do ballet. How, how do you like, I can just see people saying, Oh my gosh, how on earth would I get my team? Like, it must just be that Kevin's people, he hires really weird people. And that's why they can do that. But it's like, y'all are super likable, super like outgoing. It's not like, a, so how do you make it to where this is something that we have fun doing instead of this is something that's really awkward and weird and uncomfortable with people that I work with? Oh, that's a great, That's a really good question. You know, I wish I had a better answer. I'm trying to think about it because I'll actually tell you, this is bad. I hope if my team listens to this, they can go ahead and know this. I'm probably the one who's the most likely to walk in and be like, oh no, this is the last thing I want to do. (laughs) They actually are better sports and have a better approach than I do. I think it's, 
a good idea in theory, but then in practice, I'm like, is this a good use of my time? But I think there is a level of respect for each other where we want, I mean, everybody wants a culture that believes in each other, but Mm. we really want the best for everybody that works here. And we expect a lot from them, but, but by expecting a lot from them, we also want for them. And so I think if you care enough about the other people you work with, even if you're like, I personally hate this, I think this is stupid, but I care enough about you to give you an hour of attention because you're, you are worth that. That part, like, and I, I don't know how we get people to do that. I, I, I hope we can find that answer, but I can honestly tell you our team this Monday, we sat in a team meeting where somebody announced they were pregnant and somebody else announced that he had just gotten engaged that weekend. And I watched this team and it's not the like little, like they're genuinely pumped for each other and it makes it better when you're spending a lot of time together. That's right. No kidding. So when you're in an interview room with someone First of all, where do you fall as the owner of the organization at the stage that you're at? Where do you fall in the interview process if someone's interviewing with you? Changed last year. So the first five or six years, Alex, I was ultimately the guy that hired every single person. Mm-hmm. You know, and we we're probably around 10 people at that point. I had hired them. They had spent a lot of time with me. And we got to a point where we started to create some, we weren't as flat as we used to be, you know, an organizationally chart. We started to put some leadership processes in place and it's what our organization needed. But I inaccurately believed that I could be removed from a lot of the hiring process. And I'm not telling you the people on our team hire poorly. I don't think, but they just, what happened was we started talking to people about their roles that they were coming on board for instead of the vision of the company. This goes all the way back to that beginning about purpose. We started to tell people what we needed them to do, what their days would look like, what their activities would look like. And sometimes they even came in and did those functions well, but they weren't the people that could grow with our organization and go to the next level. You're a college football fan, aren't you, Alex? Uh, I- Texas football fan, Kevin. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really care that much about the other teams, okay. but I care well, about Texas. Hopefully you guys can be good again. Cause you, we, okay, well, this is a great conversation. We'll see you. <laughs> okay. You got to hear this though. If you don't like college football, y'all hold with us for a second. This is so good. Somebody told me the other day, they, they have met Nick Saban. I'm a Georgia football fan. Like everybody hates Nick Saban around here. Like he's just <laughs> too good. He wins too much, but he said that he changed his coaching philosophy a number of years ago And he talked about like how he started to want the best for his people, meaning early in his career, if somebody was going to go pro early, he'd try to talk them out of it. Now he's decided if that's what's best for him, he's going to encourage it. He's going to make phone calls on their behalf because that's the best recruiting for other players. If all these things, but one of the things he said that I thought was so cool, he said a lot of college coaches are looking for guys that can play on Saturday. I'm recruiting guys that can play on Sunday. If you don't like college football and you don't understand what I just said, you're listening to this, you're like, Kevin, I'm not following. He's saying, I don't want people that can just play college football. I want the ones who are going to go to the next level and play in the NFL. And we had taken our hiring down because we so wanted a role fit. We had looked for that one. So to your question, Alex, I now have been reinserted earlier in the process. It may be round two of an interview, but my job is to make sure more than anything, are they a culture fit? And do they understand where our company is going? If they're coming here for a job and not for the mission of the company, they may be a short-term fit, but they will not be a long-term fit for our team. Okay. So how do you discern that? Like, because I feel like the amateur way of discerning that in an interview can be like, this is our mission statement. What do you think about that? And and people will be like, oh, I love that. It's like, well, what are they going to say? Like, eh, not too into it, you know? So how do you go about discerning culture fit and passion for where the organization is going. Yeah. I I mean, again, I don't know that we always get this right. I'd say a few things that are key. Number one, I want to know, are they, do they have a desire to keep learning and growing? Because if they've stopped growing, they're not going to do it. So I'd ask them what kind of books they're reading. What have they been learning lately? And I don't really care what the books are. I just want to know, do they have a desire to grow? I want to ask them like, what's their burden? What keeps them up at night? What's, and 
And maybe it's like the, their kids. It may not even be, it may not even be something that relates to our business, but if somebody just lacks passion in general, they can't get, they don't get upset about something or passionate about something. It's going to be really tough to get them bought in and passionate about what we're doing. And so I just want to know, do you want to learn? Do you have anything in life you care about? Those are a couple of things that help me know, are you going to fit around here? Because if you're just an apathetic person who doesn't really want to grow, maybe you're really smart and talented, but you don't want to grow. We, we don't need you on our team. And it seems like obviously the content in the answers is important, but you're looking a lot at the way, the way that they answer, huh? Yeah, for sure. And yeah, there's little, just a little Chick-fil-A example. I met a, an operator one time and he had a three-part test for hiring. I don't know if I share this with you, but three-part test for hiring. Now, this is somebody to work at a restaurant. Number one, he'd meet him at the door and he'd walk as quickly as he can to the table or booth furthest away from the door. Because the first thing he was looking for is what was their pace? Would they, did they, would they move quickly? <laughs> the second thing is he didn't even expect them to come in with a pad and paper, but he would hand them paper and a pen, pencil or pen and say, hey, I'm going to tell you some important things that you're going to want to remember here. Because he wanted to see if they had a desire to learn, if they'd take notes. And the third thing, I love this one. At some point during the interview, he would inadvertently, but intentionally knock off a, like a pen or something off the table and see how quickly they reach to pick it up. Because that told him if they had a servant's heart. And he said, if they have a fast pace, a desire to learn and a servant's heart, I can teach anybody how to work at a Chick-fil-A. That tells me about their motives. And I think, you know, we're comp- we're looking at a resume and what college you go to. None of that really matters. What really matters is if they can do those three things, the same three things that would make them successful at a Chick-fil-A would make them successful in just about any business you can think of. Gosh, I love that. And I love how tactical that is too. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, be- because you brought up Chick-fil-A again, y'all do so much work with that organization and, and you are hyper-connected to the inside of that organization as well. I would love to know, like, what is something, because you're such a student in yourself, and I just know that you're constantly observing, right? Not just what's happening here, but how is what's happening? What is something that is maybe a story that is less told about Chick-fil-A that you've been privy to from the inside or seen and observed that you feel like is a really good lesson? Yeah. Give you one from our work with them and then another one that I've just been very impressed by with Truett. One thing is I think Chick-fil-A just takes the long view of leadership. And that is a benefit to being a privately held company that's not beholden to quarterly earning statements. But when people look at one of the pieces of work, we know we do training for them. We help with some of their strategy for you know customer care. But one of the key pieces we do for them is a program called Chick-fil-A Leader Academy. It's a high school program. Chick-fil-A is paying for a program that's going to be in high schools. And yeah, they care a lot about making impact, but ultimately it's creating brand affinity at a really young age. It's creating an employee pipeline into the restaurant and they're willing to spend money on some things that may not pay off for five or 10 years down the road. And I just think more companies uh, would benefit from taking a long view of leadership. The other thing that I think they do, it is an inclusive environment. It's a collaborative environment. But I think when Chick-fil-A is at its best and with any organization at its best, they don't fall captive to the idea of consensus-driven decision-making. I think consensus-driven decision-making is the lowest common denominator of decisions. One of our good mutual friends, Alex, David Salyers, he'd say it this way. If we ask one group what what kind of coffee they like, and they say they like really hot coffee, and we ask another group what kind of coffee they like, and they say they like cold brew, nitro, you know, cold brew. And we say, well, we want to please them both. So we're going to serve lukewarm coffee. Well, that doesn't satisfy anybody. They both hate it. So you actually have to pick a horse and go one way or another. And I love one of Chick-fil-A's, you know, they got a lot of big business stuff, but one of their key pieces that their founder started was WinShape. It's a ministry, does foster care, things for orphans, for marriages, all kinds of amazing things. But when God laid that mission on his heart, he presented it to the executive committee and they told him it's a bad idea. And he listened to them, he respected them. But in that sense, he said, I appreciate it. But in this instance, maybe not his words, but this was a sentiment. My calling trumps the consensus. I'm going to do what I'm called to do. And I will tell you as a founder and a leader, 
yes, you got to have a certain amount of buy-in. If you don't have, if you never have any buy-in, you're not going to get a whole lot done. But at some point, you got to know when your calling is going to trump your consensus and really have the guts to move forward with it. And Chick-fil-A has done that. Man, that is By the phenomenal. Way, that is worth the price of admission, Kevin. <laughs> hey, if you got a group of an accountants in the room, Alex, they would tell you opening on Sundays would be more profitable. Mm. I mean, just look at the math. There, there's you. It'd be tough to argue from a math perspective how that doesn't work, but they know what they're called to do. And I believe that's had a big impact on their business. Are you familiar with the name Doris Kearns Goodwin? Do you know that name? Yes, Team of Rivals. Yeah, have you read? Yeah, have you read that book? I have. Yes, it's been a while. Is it's about Lincoln, kind of, and the people he put around him. Yeah, so I haven't read Team of Rivals. I have not. I'm a pretty slow reader, and like okay. I think that would take about three years of my time. But I have read Leadership in Turbulent Times, and this is okay, what I. So I haven't read this one. Give me this, dude. And I know you're a politics guy too. We could do a whole. Po- podcast on that in this season right now as well. We'd probably tick too many people off though, if we did that. But one of the things she talks about it is, I mean, Lincoln, part of his leadership genius that people thought was stupidity at the time was he stocked his cabinet with people that like ran against him, violently disagreed with him at the extremes of both parties. Right. And then she said in the depths of the civil war, you know, he starts raising the idea of an executive order called the Emancipation Proclamation and people on his cabinet. He says he he has people or she says that he has people. He has men on his cabinet that literally say, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to rip the country further apart? Why on earth would you do this? It's not even within your constitutional authority to do this. This would make yeah. you a monarch or a king. They're saying you're ludicrous. Why would you even consider it? And then the other side of his cabinet on the other side of the table is literally saying this is not far enough. You need to be giving African-Americans the right to vote now, and you should be doing this now. And so he's sitting there in the center of the table, and and she writes that he, he let them debate for two months and took into account every thought and idea. And then one day he literally just said, I'm going to do it. I'm And, and it wasn't because they all agreed with him, but she said that because he allowed them to debate. They still didn't agree with the decision, but not a single person left the cabinet because they felt heard and they had enough respect for him. And that's just the first thing that I thought of is, man, Abraham Lincoln and Truett Cathy, right? Two outstanding leaders. But it's like, it's saying like, okay, we're going to hear everybody, but we don't have to have everyone sing kumbaya for us to make a decision. It's so good. And here's what I hope, Alex. I hope that I'll have the courage because it's one thing to sit here and say it on a podcast. It's another thing to walk out of the door in the office and have those conversations. And I think the challenge we all have to have is having the courage to do that when the time comes. Mm, that's absolutely right. Okay. The the final thing that I want you to talk about before we close out is you're kind of a renaissance man yourself and you've written like two leadership personal development style books. You do all these leadership talks. You've also appeared, you know, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, all that. You're, I mean, your bio sounds like the Dosecki's most interesting man <laughs> in the world, like walked with baboons and swam with great white sharks, all this stuff. But then there's this book called The Leper's Lessons. And I know that we don't have a ton of time and I know that you got to run, but I'd love just for you to talk about the heart behind this book and just really the biggest lesson that you learned in writing it with with your friend. Oh, yeah. I'd first like to tell you that it's a terrible business marketing idea to have books (laughs) that are in a totally different category. Unless you're, I guess you're really famous, then you can do it. You want, and that works. But here was the heart behind it. We spend so much time talking about leadership and talking about how do we get better at business and how do we do that? But ultimately, whether what, regardless of your business or your industry, or even if you're a, you're not in a business, like, there are fundamental questions of life and purpose that we struggle with. I was on a trip in Indonesia back in 2012. And my friend said, you got to meet a guy named Paulus. And I ended up meeting Paulus. And it was a guy that changed my life. Paulus grew up uh, Muslim. He came to, he's now a Christian. That story of his conversion is really powerful. He has an orphan ministry, has all these things. But 
he has this way of simplifying these complex thoughts down to just very clear lessons. And he pointed me to a passage in 2 Kings that I had never heard before. It's about these four lepers. You can go read it other times. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 3 to 11. These four lepers who basically are outcasts of their society and somehow God uses them to save their city. And we walk through their story and we talk about the existential questions that they would have asked themselves. Why am I still alive? Why are you still alive? Because if you have a pulse, you have a purpose. Why do you do what you do? It's a question about motivation, your identity. Why do you have what you have? It's a question about stewardship. Who's going with me? It's a question about relationship and friendships. And what am I carrying on this journey? What baggage am I carrying with me? And it's this like this simple leadership principle in the Old Testament of the Bible. But the same five questions those leopards would ask are ones we have to face all the time. And here's what I find. I sell way less of those books than I do the other two, Alex. But that's the book that when somebody passes it along or somebody reads it, I get a call. One of the ones that Paulus got on that, my co-author, was from an 80-year-old former CEO of one of the most reputable brands in the world that said, I've got all the money, but I'm empty. And I think, yeah, we need to know business principles. Yes, we need to grow our business. Yes, we need to create great cultures and all those things. But if we do all of them and we end up empty and we're not living our life on purpose for the calling that I believe God has on our life, I think we're wasting it and we're missing it. And so that's the heart behind the book. It's the questions that we've got to ask ourselves. And whether it's that book or it's some other mechanism, that's my hope is that people that are listening to this in pursuit of the business success and the personal growth, they're not losing sight of what on earth they've been put here for. Mm. Wow. That's awesome. I knew your response to that question was going to be killer. I didn't know it was going to be that good. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, so that book is The Leper's Lessons. His other two are The Lens and Eight Essential Exchanges. We'll put the links to all those in the show notes. Uh, I know you have a website and Addo has a website, so we'll put the links to those in the show notes. And then Kevin's also got a killer LinkedIn presence as well. And the writing that you post on LinkedIn and also on your blog is just phenomenal. So y'all should definitely check him out there and we'll link that in the show notes. Kevin, what would be your final word of encouragement or maybe even a challenge to impact-driven leaders that are listening to this today? Yeah. We talked about the long view of leadership. I think the one thing that I would just encourage people to do right now is not be afraid to lead when the majority is wrong. I'm seeing this in so many areas where leaders are looking for popularity more than purpose. I I love studying Old Testament stories, and I look at Mm -hmm. Joshua and Caleb and these They were two of these 12 spies that go in to look at this land and they end up coming back and two guys said we should go and 10 said they shouldn't. And the majority was 100% wrong in that situation. But watching his life, how he led, how Joshua in particular led through that, I think there's times where the world needs us to lead in the opposite direction. So how do you lead when the majority is wrong? And I think this is a question to consider. How do you know when the majority is wrong? Alex, how do you know when the majority is wrong? And I would say when doubt and fear are the lead motivators, you can almost always bet the majority is wrong. And what the world needs and what businesses need are some people with the courage and conviction to lead in the other direction. And by the way, it's not just some martyr's journey. Those are the people that end up having the most successful businesses that truly change and leave a mark on this world. Holy cow. (laughs) I am leaving this on fire, man. I know the people that are listening to this are as well. Man, the thing I appreciate about you the most is the person that you are in an interview and in a conversation is just the person that you are. And I really appreciate you for that and appreciate your impact on my life and for your time here today. So thanks so much, Kevin. Hey, this is a blast. Let's do it again.
Gosh, I am just so grateful to Kevin for his time, for his intentionality, and for his investment. Now, we're going to put all the links to all of Kevin's books and the resources that he mentioned, and also the website for Addo Worldwide in the show notes of this episode. And Addo really has a remarkable, it's a stunning website, so I would definitely go check that out. Now, as an application point on the end of this episode, I want to focus on the like kind of last line or last parting thought that Kevin gave us which was that we shouldn't be afraid to lead when the majority is wrong. I love that. And I had a mentor tell me recently, Alex, the last thing you want to do is lose a war because you were fighting in a battle that you shouldn't have been in. And isn't that so true? We don't want to lose a war. We don't want to miss out on the impact that we are called and able to make because we get caught up in the weeds of a battle we were never supposed to be in in the first place. And at the same time, he followed that exact statement up with, but the battles that are yours to fight, you have to take a stand. And so I think it's so crucial for us as leaders to recognize that not every battle is ours to fight. Not every hill is ours to die on. But it is important that we do define the battles that we are uniquely called and driven to fight in and to stand up for and then to play all out and to not be afraid to lead when the majority is wrong. I thought that was powerful advice from Kevin. Y'all, you can stay up to date on everything that we're doing within the Path for Growth community with regard to the content we're putting out and everything that we're doing within the Path for Growth membership by signing up for the email list. We'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. We're rooting for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.